I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Kilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, Bert, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Galen, Arlen, Bo, Gigadelic Media, Chance, Chase, Dan, David, Ava, Bob, The West Bank Robbery Podcast, Jamie, Gary, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Ryan, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. It's another Parallax Views double feature on the latest events unfolding in the Middle East. Both of these interviews were recorded on November 14th, and they are with responsible statecraft contributors Jeffrey Aronson and Paul R. Pillar. First up, longtime Middle East scholar Jeffrey Aronson joins us to discuss his responsible statecraft article entitled The Ghost of Ariel Sharon Hovers Over Gaza. We'll be talking about the policies of Ariel Sharon and how Gaza's future looks like both the present and the past. You'll find out what that means in the conversation to follow. Without any further ado, let's get right to it with Jeffrey Aronson. Welcome to Parallax Views, guests that I'm very happy to be speaking with. Uh, Jeffrey Aronson is a writer and analyst specializing in Middle East affairs. He was the director of the Foundation for Middle East Peace, and the editor of the bi-monthly report on Israeli settlement in the occupied Palestinian territories until June 14th. He has a substack and recently had a piece that came across my desk uh, from Responsible Statecraft, a publication we very much like here at Parallax Views, entitled The Ghost of Ariel Sharon Hovers Over the Gaza Strip. That's what we're going to be talking about. Uh, but first off, how are you doing, Jeffrey? Great. Fine. Thanks for having me. If you could, for my listeners uh, that are maybe on the younger side, um, mm. could you talk a little bit about who Ariel Sharon was and why maybe it's important to look back at Ariel Sharon uh, in terms of the present situation? Yes, yeah, certainly. Um, 
Ariel Sharon was one of the, I guess you could say, founding fathers of the modern state of Israel. Uh, he fought in all of Israel's wars, including those before independence in the late 40s. Uh, he was a controversial figure throughout his political life, um, starting out as a member of the mainstream Labor Party. But as Israel became more attached to the idea of settling throughout uh, the West Bank and even the Gaza Strip, Ariel Sharon, like many politicians, uh, followed the pop popular desire to remain permanently in these areas. And um, as prime minister, uh, if we can fast forward a bit, prime minister in the early 2000s uh, was one of the main engines behind uh, a settlement expansion drive in the West Bank, while at the same time uh, ordering in, in a move that surprised many and Israeli retreat from the Gaza Strip in two, 2005. Uh, this surprised many people because of Sharon's reputation as a, as a right-wing hawk uh, who didn't ordinarily put conceding territory to Palestinians in his diplomatic toolbox. But Sharon decided, number one, uh, as an older person, who knew that he would soon be departing the scene, he wanted to set the policy table for Israel uh, that would uh, remain pertinent beyond his death. In some respects, he didn't trust the current uh, cadre of Israeli leaders, including Benjamin Netanyahu, to do the right thing politically, in Gaza at least, and wanted to so-called create a fact on the ground. And that fact was to remove Israeli troops and Israeli settlers, who at the time numbered about 7,500 from the Gaza Strip. Now, what he was not proposing was Palestinian independence in Gaza. What he was proposing was a realignment of, Israel, of Israeli deployment to control the Gaza Strip without permanent settlements in Gaza and without a permanent Israeli military presence in the Gaza Strip. So Israel's foreign ministry at the time argued that these moves, however important they, they were, did not constitute the end of Israel's occupation of the Gaza Strip. And the, this is pertinent today as well, certainly, because Israel, notwithstanding its redeployment, remained in what they called effective control of the Gaza Strip which had a practical meaning of Israel controlling basically what went in and out of the Gaza Strip, certainly across its border with Israel, uh, and to some extent across its border with Egypt. So Israel could not claim that it had ended its responsibility for Gaza um, by withdrawing from the Gaza Strip, uh, which is an issue that we're still facing today when people talk about ending Israel's occupation of the Gaza Strip or not permitting Israel to reoccupy the Gaza Strip. Israel has never left the Gaza Strip. Um, uh, why don't I stop there? Because we'll, let's see if we can focus a little bit more directly on what's happening.
Well, if you could real quick, one thing that I often hear uh, when talking about Gossett is a lot of people will say it's occupied by Israel. And then other voices will say, well, because of what Sharon did, it's not technically been occupied. Uh, but I think a lot of people would argue that it's a essentially a de facto um, occupation, even if it doesn't meet the, no. I guess. Mm-hmm. It's a de jure occupation. Israel has not met the international. I'm not a law lawyer, but my, my understanding is that Israel has not met the international standard for ending its responsibility as an occupying power over the Gaza Strip. People can argue back and forth, certainly, but that's my understanding. That was Israel's own understanding at the time when Israeli troops um, redeployed out of the Gaza Strip in 2005. So Israel remains, formally speaking, there is no other de facto sovereign in Gaza. No one is lining up to, to claim sovereignty there, including the Palestinians. Certainly the Palestinian Authority is not. Um, which itself hasn't been a real factor in Gaza since 2007. Um, The Egyptians certainly have a long history of refusing adamantly to assume responsibility, let alone sovereignty over Gaza. So Israel's status in the Gaza Strip is a legacy of its occupation in June 1967, which has yet to be re-resolved. Uh, we know all about the Oslo process and so forth that began in 1990. Um, under ideal circumstances, that process was meant to resolve this question of who is sovereign in the Gaza Strip. But Oslo you know, has, been, has been overtaken by events in so many ways, so that Israel remains the occupying power. And so that when the State Department, for example, suggests that they they don't prefer, they don't want the reoccupation of the Gaza Strip by by Israel. That 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 song has already been sung. Israel has that responsibility in a sense, whether it wants it or not. And I, I'm surprised that the State Department doesn't yet, at least publicly, understand that. Why do you think that is with the State Department? Do you have any theories on that? Uh I, I think they were caught flat-footed by these events, which upended all of their assumptions about how things should be proceeding. I don't think they're terribly interested in revisiting this issue. Uh, they're being forced by events to engage on this. Uh, and maybe they're just a bit ignorant of their own history on this issue. You write that the model for Gaza imposed by Sharon after 2005 has failed and that it will not be resuscitated, uh, then in that regard, what comes next for Gaza? Well, what comes next is in some respects what has come before. (laughs) Tomorrow looks like today and tomorrow looks like 20 years ago or 50 years ago. Israel wants to remain in effective control over the Gaza Strip the mechanism that israel the well the the mechanisms that israel has used over the last 50 years have each in turn failed so israel has been on a, a search for a model that works over the long term 
um, for assuring its uh, the primacy of its interests in in Gaza. So what we have now is uh, a new chapter in that search, um, which is uh, which which knows more about what it does not want than what it does want. So Israel has decided it does not want the Palestinian Authority to exercise any degree of independent control in Gaza. It has decided that it does not want its former partner, i.e. Hamas, to be at all involved in, in the political or security framework that tomorrow is going to bring. Uh, it has decided that it needs to create sterile buffer zones around the west, around the Gaza Strip, to protect its own settlements on the Israeli side of the border, which were attacked uh, in on October seventh. Uh, it has decided that it wants to remain in control of the Gaza economic envelope. Uh, so that it retains control of what's going in and out. And the last and fi final issue is it wants to throw in Egypt's court the, the bulk of the responsibility for keeping Gaza just this side of, of, uh, of uh, its ability to sustain itself. If you could, in terms of what policymakers and, and various commentators and just D.C. itself, Washington itself, uh, has said about Gaza's future and the talk about the day after, uh, you know, I, I keep seeing commentaries saying, oh, there will be a, you know, we could do a U.N. peacekeeping force. I've seen people try to argue for a multilateral Arab state coalition that would be a peacekeeping force. I don't really mm -hmm. see any of this as reflective of the current facts on the ground. Would you agree with that? Yeah, these are all sort of aspirational objectives or as aspirational frameworks for how to deal with tomorrow. But as opposed to these aspirational ideas and in which I would include the U.S. State Department as well, you have you have Israeli troops on the ground uh, improvising to some degree, but within an overall security framework. And they're the ones who are determining uh, the, 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 uh, the post-war status of, of powers in, in the Gaza Strip. And until and unless uh, either the international community or more specifically the U.S. Uh, makes the transition from aspirational ideas to hard and fast policy demands, uh, the past is going to look, uh, the future is going to look like uh, the past in the sense of Israel being able to determine more or less unilaterally. It's uh, how how the future is going to unfold there. If you could, I, I wanted to talk a little bit about, you, you mentioned the relationship between Israel and Hamas. And I know uh, some guests have had on have compared it to, um, you know, the, the, there's the open air prison uh, metaphor. And then uh -huh. there's also this metaphor that uh, essentially Israel had given um, Hamas the sort of keys to be the prison gang uh, running said open air prison. Could you speak more to the relationship between 
uh, Hamas and the Israeli government before October 7th? Yeah, before October 7th, they had developed sort of wide-ranging practical understandings on how Gaza was meant to survive and trade uh, uh, that that were improv- improvised, that were in some respects inarticulate. They weren't formalized in, in peace, in treaties or even understandings. Uh, but they were sort of functional, operational uh, understandings or meet, meetings of the mind, which enabled each side to uh, to to man- manage its affairs, and which were, however, inherently fragile because they weren't based on on concrete understandings. So these these under these uh, these convergences worked until they failed, and they failed serially throughout the two two the two thousands. There were three or four or five I I, I forget times when Israel and Hamas engaged in uh, in tit-for-tat hostilities over the border and so forth, which, which eventually resolved themselves after five days, two weeks, so forth, when uh, at some point the Americans were essentially fed up and said, okay, you know, Israel, you've had your two weeks to what they called mow the grass, right, to, to cut down Hamas's uh, military capabilities, and now is a time to to sort of refashion an inherent, an inherently unstable, but nonetheless uh, achievable status quo. Uh, and and it it's it sort of worked in the sense that uh, Israel's security needs, in their own mind, were uh, achieved at acceptable cost. And uh, the guys in Hamas in Gaza were able to uh, exist under very harsh economic constrictions that Israel imposed. The so-called diet that one one of Ariel Sharon's advisors described being imposed in 2005. Uh, uh, but they, but they, they worked until they failed. And they failed spectacularly on October 7th. And now we're left to pick up those P pieces and uh, and create a new world there. Where do you see, in in concrete terms, uh, where do you see, or, or maybe even uh, layman's terms, where do you see Gaza headed from here? I know you said it's sort of a back to the future scenario, but could you elaborate for my audience on what that would mean if they're unfamiliar with the history? Yeah, I think the Israeli army is in the Gaza Strip to say for the to stay for the foreseeable future as the as the ultimate arbiter of of security affairs. I think the Israelis would like to have the international community sort of clean up after them by assuming the the uh, humanitarian. Uh, responsibilities for the Gaza Strip. And I would include Egypt in that, and they're going to have a fight from the Egyptians on this, because the Egyptians have all along seen Israel's efforts to to, uh, redeploy out of the Gaza Strip as aimed at forcing them to accept burdens and responsibilities that they don't want 
and that in some respect may even threaten the re regime in Cairo itself. So the IDF is there to stay for the long term. Uh, the area in the Gaza Strip will be um, will be constricted along its border areas with Israel to provide Israel Israeli communities an added margin of security. So there'll, there'll be uh, instead of 500 meters from the border, for example, you may have a kilometer and a half or two um, uh, kilometers that'll be mined and that will be absolutely sterile in ter terms of being denied to Palestinian farmers and so forth. Uh, and I, I think the, the Israelis will do their best to deflate or preempt, undermine any international effort to coalesce around the resumption of diplomacy, for example, between uh, Israel and the pa Palestinian Authority. Uh, as one Israeli news commentator said a couple of days ago, she said, Isra Israelis don't even give a Palestinian state a second thought anymore. It's absolutely been removed from the political environment there. And, and to reassert its importance is, is not an easy task. I was actually going to add to that. I, I know at the, I believe it was at the Munich Security Council in 2022, uh, Benny Gantz, who I think a lot of people are looking at as the potential uh, beneficiary of uh, Benjamin Netanyahu's fall, because I, I, it does seem like this could be the end of the line for Netanyahu. I've, you know, Benny Gantz at that Munich Security uh, Council is, essentially said, you know, there isn't going to be a Palestinian state. Um, there will be a Palestinian entity. Um, I'm not sure what that means, but it seems like the, the general policy for Israeli politicians is to say, no, there isn't going to be a Palestinian state. And I think this gets into something that you discussed in an article you wrote immediately after uh, or a few days after, I should say, the October 7th event. Um, on October 12th, you wrote an article uh, entitled, I Just Wish They Would Disappear. And uh, you were quoting um, a young Israeli friend that you know, uh, who said, you know, I really just wish they would disappear, as in a, a yearning to get rid of the Palestinians and to just be done with it and live a normal life uh, in Israel. I think, though, that that's an interesting uh, choice of words. I just wish they would disappear because I, I think this has been true for uh, both Israel as well as the U.S. and maybe even a number of other states uh, just sort of shelving the Palestinian issue indefinitely. Could you comment on that? Well, yeah, the the, the attitude I was referring to is, is one. Uh, this was expressed to me years ago. This was before this, the recent tragedies in Gaza, or, or it wasn't sparked, I don't recall, by any specific issue in particular. It's just sort of an existential angst that, that many Israelis have, and Palestinians as well, who have, you know, who each of whom has been sort of denied their preferences here when it comes to the other. Uh, but that's the reality in which we live, and we're we're seeing how the failure to resolve this dilemma plays out, um, and unfortunately, it's been playing out rather violently 
over the past five weeks or so. Uh, but it's not an unnatural sentiment uh, in Israel. It's not restricted to the right or the left wing. It's it's an existential feeling uh, because you have you have the other there uh, who's intruding on your day to day life, on your psychological sense of well being, uh, and is sort of the seed of many of your most elementary fears. And we've seen some of those fears realized on the ground, unfortunately, in the last month and a half. Um, and and it's, it's a circumstance that cannot be resolved easily. Um, it hasn't ever been resolved in Israel's 50 plus years of statehood. Um, uh, and, it, and it's a motivating factor as you, you, you noted the article I wrote, but the, the, fo- the, the main part of that piece was to reprise a speech that Moshe Dayan, uh, who like Sharon is part of this pantheon of Israeli founders, uh, a, a eulogy that he gave next to, in a settlement next to the Gaza Strip in 1958, in which he, the words of which could easily have been articulated today. Uh, and he said, we have to understand that these people hate us because we we took away their their futures. And you don't do yourself or them any good by denying this reality that we have to face every day. And we as Israelis have to steal ourselves for this permanent uh, opposition that is being uh, festering on the other side of the fence in Gaza, which even in 1958, he understood Gaza to be a prison uh, for people. So this is the unfortunate reality in which we're operating. And in the context of which the kinds of, you know, evolving concerns that are expressed by U.S. officials really have, have no weight at all. I mean, it's like water off a duck's back. It sounds like what you're saying is that we're in a sort of paradigm of um, permanent war. And, you know, even when it it seems like it's tapered off a bit, it's always in a a sort of low level state of war. Yeah, well, we we and I include the international community and the U.S. have have failed, have failed to 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 formulate a diplomatic prop process which offers a way out, which offers what you might say are win-win options. And the failure of that effort on the part of all concerned has is exacting a price every day, but even more so than historically, it's exacting a, a terrible price as, as we watch today. And we're all complicit in that. And the failure of diplomacy has focused has meant that that people on the outside and on the inside are almost eating each other alive in talking about Shifa Hospital and whether there are prisoners there or not, or incubators being supplied or not. This is like rats scurrying on a sinking ship. And we need the political and the diplomatic leadership to, to forge a way out of this. And unfortunately, they're all coming up short. And we all pay the price. 
I was going to say, I feel like you're echoing, maybe not fully, but in some ways, the sentiment that was recently expressed by um, Barack Obama when he said, and you can correct me if you if you think my analysis is wrong here, but when he said, um, you know, we all have a little bit of blood on our hands, um, whether we're talking about the Palestinians or Israel or even, you know, United States leadership. No, absolutely. You know, there has to be a price for failure. Um, Bibi Netanyahu is going to pay the price. Israelis of all stripes are paying a price. Certainly Palestinians today are paying a price as well. Where, where I haven't seen any sort of reckoning is here in Washington. Uh, everyone who has failed on this issue has failed upwards. And uh, no one or no one way of thinking has been subject to the kind of after action evaluation uh, that you would think might be re required in in this in this in the uh, in in the wake of the the absolutely tremendous failure of U.S. led diplomacy over the last generation. I wanted to ask you about that because. Um... You know, I, I had someone joke to me recently that if they worked in uh, Middle East or, or Near East policy uh, and October 7th happened, they would probably try to just burrow away from the public eye and not write about anything uh, for a few months in, in, out of embarrassment. Uh, but it does seem like there's just this uh, failing upwards uh, issue at play where you have people that get things wrong. Um Ali Abrams comes to mind immediately. Uh, Abrams uh, was at a congressional committee, and he this was 10 days before the October 7th attack, saying, you know, the, the threat of Hamas is actually uh, going to come from the West Bank. They're trying to uh, get more control in the West Bank, and the threat won't come from Gaza. And, and to me, he got it completely wrong uh, just 10 days before the attack, and yet I'm seeing him all over the media still. So what accounts for this filling upwards? Well, we keep hiring the same plumbers who failed to stop the leaks, you know, and you wouldn't do it in your house, but we do it politically. Um, and whatever the answer is, the fact, the fact is that we're still using the same folks with the same toolbox to suggest outcomes that they failed to improve upon, you know, over the last decades. You know, there hasn't been an Israeli-Palestinian diplomatic agreement since 1996. That's quite a long time. Um, and and uh, it's just part part of the, the, the wallpaper today. Uh, and I'm not I don't see much evidence that even in the in the aftermath of the kind of shock that we're we're experiencing, that there's any sense on the part of policymakers that, you know, we really need to, to do a B team understanding of what what what's going on here. It's entirely absent. And, and in that environment, what we have is a replaying out of sort of the historical ba balance of power. Which is Israel knows what it's what it wants, and is more committed to get what it wants 
than the others around the table. And it has the tools to do, do so. And uh, until that equation is challenged, uh, the Israelis more or less are going to call the shots, as they're doing now in Gaza. Where has the Palestinian authority fell short? Because you've written about that a little bit, where you know a lot of Palestinians I've known aren't necessarily big fans of the Palestinian Authority. Where has the PA fell short? Well, let's back up a bit. The the responsibilities of any Palestinian ruling authority are basically twofold, threefold. One is to is to create, preserve, defend sovereignty, number one, which is from to create an ability to withstand external challenges. Number two, to create an ability to withstand internal challenges, the primary source of which are settlers. And the third is to create the basis for some sort of economic well-being. Now, in each of those three domains, the PA has fallen short, in part because of its own inadequacies, but also in part because structurally it was ne never meant or intended to accomplish those three objectives. So they've they've been in a trap for the last 40 years, 30 years. They've been unable to, to provide the basic um, ingredients that Palestinians expect from them because it's, they're, number one, to some extent incompetent, but more importantly, structurally, they haven't been given the tools by powers greater than them to implement their re re responsibilities. So that that's, that's the dilemma that the Palestinian Authority has today. And, you know, to the extent that we aided that fantasy by calling the, the head of this authority a president, for example, right? It, it's, it's, it's a wish that really nobody's prepared to fulfill. And we we live with those shortcomings, you know, as outsiders. But Palestinians certainly have to live with this on a day to day ba ba basis. And I'm sure it's I know it's terribly frustrating and d disheartening to see its political representatives be reduced to the kind of impotency that they currently um, experience. I see a lot of people when faced with the Israel-Palestine uh, conflict or issue, say it, it's just too complex, there's nothing that can be done. What do you say to those people? Because I, I feel like there have been clear mistakes made in terms of U.S. policy on this issue. And what are ways that the U.S. could go about things differently, I suppose? Well, I think the ba basic challenge that U.S. policymakers have always faced is how important is it, re 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 is it really for U.S. ideas to form the ba basis for a diplomatic agreement when faced with adamant demands of other parties? And the answer until now has been, by and large, large the U.S. does not want what it wants more than the other parties want what they want. So you lose. So the State Department 
can't impose its vi its vision because it isn't hasn't convinced the other people around the table that it it really demands to get their way and i think that's a change of attitude that has to happen if the americans are to emerge as the kingmakers again uh, and but all evidence suggests that that isn't going to happen and that the the party around the ta table that's in the best position to articulate the future are the Isra israelis and more specifically those israelis who are speaking now for the for the for the majority who who consider a palestinian state to be an afterthought and not worth you know thinking about what do you see the ramifications of all this being for uh, Palestinians in Gaza going forward? And what I mean by that is uh, I've had a lot of guests express concern that the current bombardment is just going to create further blowback in the future. In other words, radicalization of uh, young children who, if they survive this, uh, will end up you know, joining militant resistance groups as well. Uh, do you think that's going to be an issue going forward? Well, it's been an issue in the past, and I see no reason why it won't be an issue in the future. I was going to say, I think it's true of uh, Muhammad Daif. I mean, his his wife and his infant son were killed. So it's not a new, you know, it's it, to some extent what we're seeing today is a new new story. But unfortunately, in many respects, it's a very old story. I also wanted to ask you, um, I just wanted to ask you about the West Bank settlement situation uh, and what people need to know about that, because I, I feel like it's being uh, forgotten at times in, in lieu of what is happening in Gaza. And I, I understand why people are focused on Gaza, but how important is the situation in the West Bank right now? Well, I think it's important enough for the State Department to call attention to to the fact that there are people in the settlement movement in Israel who see what's happening in and around Gaza as an opportunity to make strategic gains for the settlement movement in the West Bank, whether by taking territory, land away from, from Palestinians, uh, whether by chasing Palestinians out, either on a small scale, or perhaps I'm sure there are those in Israel, some few perhaps, who are dreaming of, of, a, of, a, of a historical opportunity to move Palestinians west out of the west east out of the west bank um and who were guided by some sort of millennial understanding you know of of God's real purpose in, in on this planet um which to 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 create a Jewish state from the from the Jordan westward uh so there there is a real danger of a provocation in the west bank on the part of, of settlers, I believe, um, who could really do tremendous damage to uh, to the kind of security environment that currently exists there. And I think that's why the State Department surprisingly has singled this issue out in the last week or so, uh, because I'm sure they, they're getting reports that, you know, there there's a heightened degree of IDF of Israeli military response throughout the West Bank. Uh, there are settlers who are now crossing red lines in terms of using weapons and armed 
uh, armed uh, capabilities in their confrontations with Palestinians over the olive har harvest. So things are, to some extent, moving out of control. And in the absence of what's going on in Gaza, they would be they would be um, forcing greater attention than has been the case during the last month. In closing, I, I was I was recently speaking uh, to an American Jewish friend of mine who said, "You know, there's a silver lining in all of this. You know, uh, soon Netanyahu is going to reap what he has sown." Uh, there's a protest movement against him, and the Likud's power will be diminished after Netanyahu is gone, and then things will change, and, and maybe even peace will happen in the future. What do you want to say to people that have that view? Because I suspect it's a bit, I, I, it feels Pollyannish to me. Well, it's again, it's an aspiration rather than a description of what the balance of forces are on the ground for better or worse. And for better or worse, the, the last 30 years has seen the progressive diminution of Israeli political forces that are promoting and that believe in their hearts that an Israeli retreat from the West Bank settlements and the creation of a sovereign Palestinian state is, is a primary Israeli security, political, moral interest. Those those forces hardly exist anymore, um, and that that's the that's the the reality, and that's the challenge, or one of the many challenges that policymakers, you know, on all sides of the equation have to face. How can my listeners keep up with the work you're doing, Jeffrey? And what do you hope they get out of the conversation we've been having for the past forty or so minutes here? Well, you know, the attention span of the American public is is pretty short, uh, as you know better than I do. And and the and this is this this unfortunately is is going to soon become old news, and people are going to settle back into their sort of normal um, normal lives in the sense that this will be like Sudan, for example. You know, it's it's just like it's happening, but it's not forcing us to undertake any sort of extraordinary measures to address it. Um, so the it's important to keep educating oneself about this. Um, I personally am not sure that that uh, that public demonstrations, uh, advocating certain policies that Washington should or should not take are are going to rise to the kind of le le level to create a political imperative on the part of policymakers. Uh, that's a tremendously high fence that has to be scaled here. Uh, I think I think uh, again, the future is going to look a lot like the past. We'll wring our hands. We'll try to fix this at the margins. Uh, but sort of the fundamental equation will will re remain the, the the same and almost unmovable. It, it sounds to me as if the only way this ends is I've had other guests say this, but the only way I think this will ever end uh, is if there's a political solution. There needs to be a 
a Palestinian state. Do you agree with that sentiment? Well, the, the, first of all, it hasn't ended. And I ha ha having spent many decades looking at this from the inside and outside, I'm, I'm not at all con confident that we have the tools required to, quote, end it. Um, but certainly uh, in the absence of an absolute military victory, and those are very hard to come by and are rarely what they seem to be, uh, you have a political outcome. And again, as nice as it would be to suggest that there is that option, the record until now suggests that diplomacy has worked in 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 to protect those interests, i.e., settlements, for example, that are the key to to that that need need to be crushed, frankly, in order for a political settlement to be established, and 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 uh, if one wants to believe and hope that that will be the case, you're entitled. To, to that. But, you know, for someone like myself, I have to look at this with, with a very hard and jaundiced eye, uh, just because of, of a past which I can't avoid thinking about. Well, I, I know that's a a sad, but I, I would say <laughs> I, well, it's, it's a realistic and, and I think um, hard-nosed approach, and I, I appreciate that. Uh, so my listeners can keep up with your work at um, jeffreyaronson.substack.com. Is there any other uh, links my listeners should be aware of? No, I think that's fine. That's fine. Thank you. Next up, Paul R. Pillar, an academic and former 28-year veteran of the CIA, joins us to discuss his responsible statecraft pieces is Gaza on track for permanent war? And with world's focus on Gaza, West Bank conflict brews. We'll also get into a discussion of U.S. foreign policy when it comes to the Middle East. All that and much more in the conversation to follow. Let's get right to it with Paul R. Pillar. Welcome to Parallax Views, a guest that I'm really happy to have on. Uh, I've actually read his work on and off uh, for some time now. Uh, Paul R. Pillar, a non-resident senior fellow at the Center for Security Studies of Georgetown University and a non-resident fellow at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft. And of course, everyone knows that we like having anyone on from the Quincy Institute here at Parallax Views. And Paul has a few uh, very interesting articles out, including an article about the possibility of Gaza being on track for permanent war and an article on the West Bank conflict. And I think those articles are pretty important at this time. They can be found at responsiblestatecraft.org. How are you doing, Paul? Fine. Good to be with you. So it's hard for me to... Uh, figure out where to start because so much has happened from October 7th when the Hamas attack occurred, uh, the atrocious Hamas attack. Uh, and now, uh, just a month later, there's been this bombardment by Israel uh, of Gaza, uh, so many lives lost. 
And it, it's quite horrifying to me as someone who, you know, really sympathizes with the Palestinian people. Uh, what's your analysis of what has happened in the past month? What What are the flashpoints for you? Well, maybe we better start by saying where things didn't start. I mean, one, one of the one of the themes and so much commentary we're hearing is that, well, it all started on October 7th, as if this were something that came out of the blue uh, with a group called Hamas um, suddenly deciding to do an evil act and there was nothing that came before. Well, of course, the truth is that this is the latest round of violence and inhumanity in a conflict that has now gone on for decades. Um, I, I think we ought to be clear here because it's almost impossible to you know, discuss this topic analytically, however much one tries to do that, without people drawing judgments you know, one way or another. And I think in the face of the inhumanity that we've seen on both sides, uh, you know, let, let, let's Let's make this clear. There are a couple of different ways in which people uh, react to an inhumane act carried out by a state or group or anyone else. One is to sort of condemn it in isolation on its own terms without reference to what came before uh, or what it might be a reaction to, or to take into account what um, uh, came before and what it might be a reaction to and to uh, temper or shape one's judgments accordingly. What I think is inexcusable, and I hear much too much of this in the discourse about this tragic situation, is to uh, judge, you know, one side in the conflict the first way, that is to say, you know, condemn Hamas for what it did on October 7th with absolutely no reference to the context of what came before, while in the same breath condoning or excusing what the other side may be doing, uh, to an even larger scale uh, in terms of being an affront to humanity by referring to what came before and what it's a response to, namely that the Israelis are responding to October 7th. Um, you know, we could go on and on in terms of the, the, the history of this conflict, uh, but the basic parameters I think are familiarly enough um, that we have uh, occupation uh, and blockade, whether you're referring to the West Bank or Gaza, uh, that has uh, not only denied human and political rights to the Palestinian people, uh, but has been uh, the subject of much uh, in the way of casualties and inhumanity, even though it it does not hit us between the eyes suddenly like the Hamas attack on October 7th did. Um, you know, one thing I cited in one of those two articles was what had taken place in the way of casualties uh, in the Palestinian territories over the preceding few wars. If you go back to 2015, I stopped there because 2014 was the last big war that uh, the Israelis uh, fought in Gaza before the current one. And from 2015 up until I think it was August of this year, uh, the number of Palestinians in the West Bank and in Gaza, but it's mainly the West Bank, uh, who have died at the hands of Israelis, either the Israeli Defense Forces or uh, Israeli settlers in the West Bank, was uh, almost 1,600, about 1,595, something like that. You know, more even than uh, died at the hands of Hamas on October 7th. But it it didn't happen all at once. You know, it dribbled out. You know, week after week, day after day. So. What we are seeing is uh, just the the latest and unfortunately uh, 
some of the most lethal and most inhumane uh, chapters in this whole tragic conflict that's been going on. Um, well, you know, in in some senses since the 1940s, but uh, in most uh, the most uh, uh, senses that we ought to be worried about since 1967 with the uh, Israeli conquest of what we now call the occupied territories. Real quick, since you mentioned uh, just the the discourse around uh, what is currently happening and this sort of refusal to reckon with everything prior to October 7th. Uh, as we all know, uh, the UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres uh, was attacked for saying, you know, history didn't start on October 7th while he also condemned uh, Hamas. Do you think that the way we're talking about uh, this Israel-Hamas war is actually impeding uh, possibility of, of future progress towards a, a long-term solution to the Israel-Palestine issue? Well, I think that you know the pattern that you and I have now just mentioned is not helpful at all. Uh, the, you know, the, the task seems to be phrased, as the Israelis would see it, in, quote, destroying Hamas. Um, you know, one of the big problems there is even, even if Israeli forces and the fighting that's going on right now could in some realistic sense destroy uh, you know, the, the military wing of Hamas, the one that did October 7th, uh, and, and capture or kill enough Hamas fighters that they could at one point declare that they've achieved their mission, you can't really kill Hamas as, as a nationalist movement, which is what it is. Uh, you can't kill it as a as an organizational manifestation of of an aspiration, uh, uh, one of the more violent manifestations. There are other ones, of course, but a manifestation of the Palestinian desire for self determination and and to an occupation and a state of their own. Uh, you know, the Hamas objective all along has been uh, power in a Palestinian state, uh, regardless of what the borders of that state might be, and despite you know number of uh, uh, comments you can point to that people are, you know, want to cite about, well, Hamas is dedicated to the destruction of Israel. Well, actually, you know, in the past, they've said a lot of things uh, uh, that uh, mean that they would, if they could be ruling a Palestinian state side by side uh, with Israel, uh, that would be uh, achieving achieving their goal. So, no, I don't think it's helpful. Uh, I, I do see, you know, a, a faint glimmer of hope, but it's no more than a glimmer that we now have, uh, say, the Biden administration in Washington uh, speaking about uh, the need for an eventual political resolution of, of the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. And they, they haven't said much about that at all earlier in the administration. Uh, instead, you have people like the president and Jake Sullivan saying, well, you know, the Middle East is relatively quiet. We can you know, turn to uh, matters involving China or Ukraine or something else. Um, but until and unless, uh, you know, the U.S.-Israeli relationship gets fundamentally changed to something different from what it's been over these last several decades, uh, and there is a price to be paid by Israel for continuing to refuse uh, to make the kinds of uh, uh, concessions that would be required for a resolution, then then I, I think that's just going to still be talk as it has been for so many years. What are those concessions that Israel would need to make if, if there are people listening that are unfamiliar uh, with some of this history? 
Well, it's the basic concept of, of whether they would accept a Palestinian state living side by side peacefully with the state of Israel with specific boundaries to be determined through negotiations. Um, but, you know, something that is a lot closer to the 1967 boundaries than to, you know, the Bantu stands of South Africa, if I can put it that way. Uh, but it, but it would be subject to negotiation. You've had you've had uh, unofficial uh, efforts to uh, chart out what a kind of negotiated agreement like that would be. There might be land swaps uh, in which you know the bigger Israeli settlements would be accepted as a fact of life and would become part of Israel. But in return for that, the Palestinian state would get you know something something out of what is current uh, current Israeli territory. Uh, but with the you know the current Israeli government certainly. Um, they have made it, they, you know, most of the senior people, certainly the more extreme ones, but even Netanyahu himself uh, has made it clear that that is simply not something that they are going to accept. You know, in the past, when Netanyahu has been prime minister in his earlier governments, he was fr from time to time would say something that uh, I think we can say is lip service, perhaps, to the concept of a Palestinian state. But more recently, and certainly as long as he wants to hold his right wing coalition together, he's been much more explicit that that is simply not in the cards. And as long as it isn't, we're not going to have a resolution of this conflict. Can you speak to the possibility of Gaza ending up in a state of permanent war? What, what do we mean by permanent war and, and what will that look like? Well, we can just say see what it's looked like. Uh, over the last uh, you know, several decades, because we've had you know multiple rounds of um, the Israeli defense forces, uh, not only bombarding from the air, but going in on the ground. You know, 2014 was an earlier one. 2008, 2009 was another round. So uh, this is just the latest round. It is bigger and bloodier with uh, significantly more casualties than the previous ones. But there is no more reason to expect um, that... Uh, that the result is going to be any more beneficial or bring us any closer to peace. I think the the result will be the opposite because of of the understandable, unsurprising anger and resentment over all the new casualties and the new suffering that have been imposed over this last month, in addition to everything else that's that's involved uh, the the blockade of of Gaza, which is uh, of such a character that it's generally been referred to, I think rightly, as an open air prison. So it'll be uh, more of the same, I think, in the short term, uh, you know, the the actual combat and guns firing on the ground is going to continue longer. Uh, it may have already continued longer than it did in those couple of uh, earlier instances than I, that I mentioned, I think, especially the 2014 one. Um, and, and so that that might be a difference. But but even even if it reaches the point where the idea basically stops shooting as much as they are today and the israeli government says okay we've we've destroyed the hamas military wing you know whether they really did or not then then what you'd see is probably at least as violent a a a period between active war in the form of uh occasional um but probably more frequent than before uh barrages of rockets you know from from some part of gaza or or hezbollah might be you know playing a role in the north as well uh with responses by the israelis involving airstrikes individual terrorist attacks 
And if it's not Hamas doing it, it'll be somebody else, the Palestinian Islamic Jihad or some other group that hasn't even been formed yet. Um, that's that's what it's going to look like, a combination of, of perhaps the, you know, the current warfare being drawn out longer than the previous rounds. And then even when it we can say, well, this round of war has finally ended, there's going to be an awful lot of violence um, based on the fact that uh, the people in Gaza are still being denied self-determination. And there's all that other resentment that's been building up from the awful destruction we've seen over the last month. I think one of the uh, biggest omens I've seen lately is uh, Netanyahu essentially saying there's going to be a permanent security presence in Gaza for the foreseeable future. And also, I mean, we have uh, figures like Isaac Herzog saying, uh, you know, there are no innocent civilians in Gaza, and he he's considered a relatively moderate figure in Israeli political terms. And also we have that UN ambassador to Israel. He was on TV recently saying that there is no humanitarian crisis in Gaza. And I mean, this is just denial of reality. So I, I feel like what Israeli officials have been saying is uh, very ominous thus far. Well, I think it is. And and you're right to highlight the, the statement uh, by Herzog, uh, because that's just openly, blatantly, deliberately trying to justify collective punishment of all the residents of Gaza. And, you know, I, let me put it this way. The, the Israeli version, of course, and that of Israel supporters is uh, this is a resp- all a response to October 7th. And the, and the goal is to, quote, destroy Hamas, unquote. You know, bearing in mind what I said earlier about whether that's really possible. I think several other dynamics are are really taking place, you know, in an offensive that to any objective observer has gone way, way beyond anything that can be construed as defense. Um, and and beyond anything that even for those whose first priority and possibly only priority is is the future security of Israeli citizens. Um is is not really doing doing that job. I think some of the other dynamics that are involved are, first of all, just raw rage and a sense of a desire for revenge after October 7th, which because it did, because it was a horrendous violent act and it all happened at once, uh, it was a big shock. Uh, you know, some of this, um, uh, the Israeli response just on an emotional level is, is hardly surprising. Um, Secondly, I think uh, a lot of it is, uh, to be quite blunt, um, uh, just a hatred toward Palestinian Arabs uh, of a, a sort of bigotry that unfortunately has is, is cropped up and, and manifested itself in many other ways, uh, wherever uh, Israelis and Palestinians have come into contact, including on the West Bank. Another dynamic is in, encapsulated by that Herzog uh, statement uh, that is basically collective punishment. Uh, and you can see that partly on a just the emotional level, but it could also be interpreted as somewhat more calculated that, uh, well, the people of Hamas, people of Gaza, a lot of them were supporting Hamas. So, you know, we can't just deal with the one organization. We have to deal with the bigger picture. And and the final dynamic, I think, uh, which, of course, no one on the Israeli side is going to admit, uh, is is it's, but I'll, I'll use the term ethnic cleansing. Uh, this this uh, occasion is being used as an opportunity to pursue further um, the taking of land from Palestinians. And, and we've seen this come up in a couple of ways over these last three or four weeks. 
Um, as we know, the Israeli government has actually been talking directly with the Egyptians and others about seeing if they can move, you know, at least half the population of Gaza into the Egyptian Sinai. Well, of course, the Egyptian government, for very good reasons, refuses to have anything to do with that. But that that is a that's expulsion. That's a continuation of the 1948 Nakba. And then over on the West Bank, we've seen this surge of settler activity, not policed in any kind of way by the government. And sometimes you've got uh, even IDF soldiers joining in on it, of settlers using violence, intimidation, everything from cutting down olive trees to chasing goat herds away to more direct forms of violence that has resulted in you know several just in the last month, several Palestinian villages having their whole population just they can't take it anymore, and they they get up and leave. And where they're going to go, who knows? Uh, but uh, you know, th this has been certainly a long term objective of the extremist elements of the settler movement, uh, and this this is part of the dynamic, tragically enough, that is going on now. And that's over on the West Bank, not uh, not in Gaza. I wanted to say real quick for the sake of my listeners that Israeli ambassador to the UN was uh, Gilad Erdan. Uh, my apologies to my listeners for blanking there for a moment. But um, what what role has U.S. foreign policy and the U.S.-Israel special relationship uh, played in bringing us to the moment we're in right now? Uh, the main role it's played is that the U U.S. hand, even when it when Washington expresses a different preference from what Israel is doing, has never been used in a firm enough, I should never, never in the last uh, uh, you know, 30 years at least, uh, has been used in a firm enough way such that you've had a whole succession of Israeli governments that have gotten used to the idea they can basically go ahead and do what they want to do, even when it um, is not what their patron Washington wants them to do, and they're not going to pay a price for it. You know, the, the last time there was any serious effort by a U.S. administration to exercise, you know, some kind of, uh, uh, to use leverage with Israel was way back in the Bush 41 administration, when uh, for a while, President Bush and Secretary of State Baker had withheld some uh, some financial credits, which was for housing in Israel, um, because of issues of you know how they were handling the occupation of the West Bank, and this uh, this then resulted in the the government of Yitzhak Shamir having then losing the next election. But you know that's that's now decades ago, and uh, nothing has happened since then to disabuse Netanyahu in particular or or others in his governments from the idea that, okay, Washington doesn't like this, and then Washington's maybe saying things that we ought to exercise restraint on this or that. But we know we can just go ahead and do what we're going to do, and we're, we're not going to pay the price. You know, that $3.8 billion uh, in annual aid is we're still going to get. And of course, now we've got these proposals uh, before Congress, you know, to add another uh, $10 billion or more to that, uh, despite what's going on in Gaza. Um, so I, it's a matter of conditioning Israeli uh, political expectations over many, many years uh, that results in the fact that even when today President Biden now is speaking uh, more about where Israel needs to restrain its operations, you know, don't hit the hospitals and that sort of thing, um, we're not seeing any response because Israel has long been conditioned to believe that it doesn't need to respond.
what drives that by chance? Because you, you I mean, you mentioned H.W. Bush had issues with uh, the Likud party and Yitzhak Shamir and even a, a young uh, Netanyahu, to my understanding, uh, who was involved in the Shamir administration or government. Um, but also, I, I think the Clinton administration privately had their issues with Israel. Uh, it's been much publicized, the issues that Obama had with Netanyahu. Uh, so what is driving the if behind the scenes, these administrations are reported to have issues uh, with Israel's policies when it comes to the Palestinians, why are they why does the U.S. do so little in terms of policy to, you know, uh, reprimand Israel? Uh, it's the role of Israel in American politics. It's uh, you mean groups know. like APAC? Yes, you know the the, the Israel lobby uh, has had an enormous role in you know, on on both sides of the political spectrum. Although in recent years, you know the Republican Party has become more and more the party of uh, Israel, right or wrong. But uh, you you still have the influence on the Democratic side, as as most. Dem, dem, dramatically demonstrated by the posture that uh, the Biden administration took immediately after October 7th. You know, I, I personally think that a lot of this is, you know, the power of APAC and the and the other elements of the lobby uh, is, is built on the reputation that it's already established in the past. That is to say, I, I think, uh, you know, if American politicians showed a little more courage on this, not not as many would be as harshly penalized at the polls as 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 they think they would be. Although, of course, it's not just a matter of polls. It's a matter of financial contributions and, and the, the whole complex way in which interest groups in general uh, 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 relate to American politicians and parties. But but that's in a, in a nutshell. And, you know, the, the Israeli government has placed major emphasis on uh, sustaining this is role in American politics. And so whatever takes place uh, in discussions behind closed doors between Israeli leaders and U.S. leaders or officials, once uh, they finish the conversation, the Israelis can go off and say among themselves, well, that's that's what they want. But, uh, you know, he, he's responsible to a government that's responsible to the voters. And we know we can always uh, our friends are always going to be able to uh, make sure our interests are protected. What are the risks uh, posed to the U.S. when it comes to the Gaza crisis escalating? And I'm I'm specifically thinking about the specter of uh, blowback uh, and how this could lead to blowback against the U.S. Well, I think there's both the short-term risk and the, and the longer-term one. The short-term one, which has gotten a lot of discussion, is whether the current warfare would expand uh, geographically uh, in ways that might uh, sweep in uh, the Americans to a greater degree. You know, we've still got those troop elements sitting in Syria and in Iraq. They've already been involved to to some degree uh, with exchanges of fire with uh, elements in those countries that are sympathetic to to the Palestinians. Um, so we've had that little bit of escalation. Um, the the longer term one i'm really even i'm really worried about more uh and that is that the the tremendous uh you know resentment that is being directed not just to israel but to the united states seen correctly as israel's big patron and supporter <clears throat> which <clears throat> not only is you know casting all those vetoes on israel's behalf at the u.n security council but now is 
furnishing you know billions of dollars of aid uh part of which is paying for to put it bluntly the slaughter that's going on in gaza so the united states has on this whole issue has has lost most of the global south um there is a lot of widespread uh strongly negative views toward the role that the u.s has taken despite some of the more recent uh comments that the president and secretary blinken have made about well gee we wish you know israel would restrain itself more uh how that can manifest itself well in many different ways but uh you know i'm a former counter-terrorist official and what i worry about is is violent reaction not necessarily by an organized group uh, but even just by you know cells and onesies and twosies and we may see an upsurge in anti-american violence of the terrorist sort uh especially to u.s interests overseas but possibly back here in the united states uh because of the additional motivation uh uh to 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 the people who are potential perpetrators and are really fired up about what's happening to the palestinians today since you mentioned the global south um I've brought this up before with other guests, but I've wanted I've I've had listeners that want me to elaborate on it, and and I think you would do a good job of it. Is uh, why is the potential harm that this is going to do with regards to U.S. relations to the global South uh, important? What are the implications of uh, those relations being negatively impacted by this? And I guess I, I should also know. I mean. I think when it comes to the global south, the only country I can think of that is um, really supportive of of Israel is probably a, a country like Modi's India. But right. in general, the global south seems to have a very pro-Palestinian sort of slant to it. And uh, I, I think there is uh, implications to global south and U.S. relations being harmed by this. Yeah, well, I, I already pointed to one, and that that's in the area that gets outside government policy entirely and is you know, the violent actions and reprisals by individuals or groups. Um, and when we're talking about uh, how parts of the global South may react to the U.S., we should remember that even with authoritarian governments, um, even if the government, you know, doesn't want to do anything unfriendly to the United States or wants to stay close to us, they do have to listen to their population. I think Saudi Arabia is the, is the big example, certainly in an authoritarian regime. One that has, uh, as as we know, has been looking toward developing further its relationship with Israel. That seems to be, you know, kind of on hold for the moment for obvious reasons. But uh, the Saudi population, uh, like uh, in other Arab states, has very strong feelings about this in terms of what's happening to the Palestinians. And Mohammed bin Salman and his regime can't just ignore that. Um, so that, that's we should keep that dynamic in mind, even if a a regime. You know, has reasons uh, to stay close to the United States that uh, they have to to listen to their populations to some degree. Besides the the possibility of you know unofficial violence, there are all kinds of ways in which, even just by our own foreign policy criteria, as enunciated by the current administration, by people like President Bush and National Security Advisor Sullivan, we we think of a lot of what's happening in the global South as a form of competition now between us and the Chinese. Um, and, you know, who's going to uh, have the better relationship with South, Southern country X? Is it going to be Beijing or is it going to be Washington, which spills over into many things, foreign investment, uh, votes at the UN, 
uh, military access rights, and I could go on and on, to the to the extent that any of those regimes, again, partly bearing in mind what uh, what their population thinks, feels a need to draw farther away from the United States, and to the extent that they still want big power support, maybe closer to China, then there's a whole host of things that certainly would register as downsides as far as U.S. foreign policy is concerned. Just a few more brief things I wanted to touch upon here. When it comes to talking about, uh, you know, Israel-Palestine, this this issue, this conflict, uh, what are some of the 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 biggest myths or misconceptions people have uh, about this issue, and uh, maybe the the various uh, attempts that have been made to uh, broker peace agreements. Uh, what do you think Americans have been maybe led astray on? I think the biggest myth is the idea that uh, Israel has repeatedly made. Uh, you know, reasonable offers for some kind of settlement, and it's the Palestinians that have repeatedly turned them down. I, I was going to say real quick in that regard, not to interrupt you, but I, I always hear that people always bring up um, the Cape, Camp David 2000 summit, and yep. people forget that Robert Malley, who helped organize that and was a Clinton official, has said on multiple occasions that you know it wasn't really as generous of an offer as people claim, and there were reasons that Arafat uh, had issues with it, but but go on. That, that's that's quite true, and we might just take one step beyond Camp David in 2000. Um, after they left Camp David, the Israelis and the Palestinian negotiators <clears throat> resumed their work into January of 2001 at Taba in Egypt on the Red Sea. Uh, progress was made. Uh, both sides made concessions. Uh, they they wound up. They, they issued a joint statement, a joint communique in which they said, we're closer than we've ever been uh, to an agreement. And we think if we you know, keep, keep working after an Israeli election that was coming up shortly, um, we can get to a final settlement. Uh, it was the Israeli government then under uh, Ehud Barak that ended those negotiations. And then Barack lost the subsequent election. It was Ariel Sharon that won it, and Sharon never resumed them. Uh, the Palestinians were quite happy to to resume the negotiations and to take advantage of the progress they had made to to uh, get get to a settlement. But it was the Israeli side that backed away from from the idea of finally giving the Palestinians some kind of state of their own. And you know, if if you think about it just more broadly, in terms of which side in this highly asymmetrical conflict has more of an incentive to work hard to reach a settlement and which side doesn't? Uh, the side that really has the incentive to reach a settlement is, is, the, is the ones that, that don't have a state now, is the Palestinians. You know, right. they, they're at a real diplomatic disadvantage. Well, well, they're at a huge diplomatic disadvantage, but they're also, the status quo is highly unsatisfactory to them. They're, they're the ones that have most reason to be unhappy with current events or current state of affairs and to reach a settlement that uh, gives them something different. It's complacency on the Israeli side, uh, you know, with being able to sort of wall off the West Bank and and keep Gaza blockaded. And then most Israelis can lead a prosperous, peaceful life and forget about all the misery on the other sides of the walls. 
they're the ones that are more satisfied with the status quo. <laughs> so it just the, the whole the whole idea that it's the Palestinians that don't want to have a settlement that would bring them a state they don't have now just makes no sense at all. And in fact, given the history that that you and I just recalled, uh, it's it's not true of the history either. And yet there's it gets repeated over and over and again this myth that you know to use. Uh, uh, Abba Iban's famous phrase, you know, the Palestinians never miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity, that it was it was all their fault uh, in the face of supposedly generous offers by by the um, uh, by the Israelis. And, and you know, th this in a sense, this all goes back even as far as the 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 U.N. partition plan of 1947, <laughs> where, as everyone knows, it was the Arab states that were very unhappy about this and rejected it. That's quite true. But if you look at the plan, uh, it was highly, highly slanted toward the Jewish population you know, that became Israel. Uh, in, in the two states, uh, the, the, the Jews of Palestine were to be given a state that not only you know, had the most of the best land, but it would have included a, a large proportion of the Arab population, even though it was going to be a Jewish state, whereas the other state, that never came into existence uh, had hardly any Jewish population at all. So there was just as Arafat had good reason to be hesitant about accepting what uh, Barack laid on the table at Camp David in 2000. Uh, so too was that was a similar situation back in 1947 when the Arabs had very good reasons to be extremely unhappy about the partition plan. One thing that has come up on this show. Uh, with multiple guests is the issue of uh, Netanyahu and the Likud party. Uh, and of course, you know, Ariel Sharon uh, belonged to the Likud party, Menachem Begin, uh, Yitzhak Shamir. This party has had a lot of influence over the years in Israeli politics, but sometimes I get the impression, especially from um, liberal and uh, American Jewish friends of mine, that there's this sentiment that if, the Likud party or Netanyahu would just go away uh, or if their power would be diminished or, you know, after this war, Netanyahu, his, his career is finished, he's kaput, that everything will just get better uh, and there will finally be a peace process. I'm very skeptical of that, to be honest. I was wondering what your take on that is, though. Uh, the whole Israeli political spectrum has been moving to the right uh, and moving to hardline positions on the issues we've been talking about for, for many years now. And it's not just Likud. And now if you look at the current coalition, uh, you know, Netanyahu and some of his Likud colleagues are among the more, quote, moderate, unquote, elements of that. Uh, and it's Netanyahu's desire to hold that coalition together in which he's uh, dependent on extreme right-wing support. Uh, so he keeps keeps in power and, among other things, uh, delays a prosecution on a corruption case that's been hanging over his head. But, uh, you know, the the extremists, as represented by Ben Gavir, who's the um, uh, the national security minister, who's been handling out rifles to Israeli settlers, uh, and Smotrich, uh, another one of the extremists who is, has responsibilities not only in the finance ministry, but also in the, in the administration of the West Bank, uh, occupation that are uh, even much farther to the right than than Netanyahu and Likud. And, and I think 
even and, and if you, if you want to look at you know sort of pro peace more on the left elements there are only fragments. I mean, the, the the Labor Party, which once was the governing party of Israel up until 1977, has left only something like four seats in the Knesset, um, and 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 other elements that uh, might have uh, you know similar progressive views are are, are basically all, almost uh, you know, non-factors in Israeli politics today. So I would agree with you. It's it's not just a matter of certainly not just a matter of Netanyahu. Although he's the face that we're most familiar with, and not just a matter of the Likud party, it's 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 a whole larger trend in Israeli politics. I just wanted to add to that briefly. I was I was going to say, um, you know, even this uh, figure who a lot of people are saying is going to be the successor to Netanyahu or the beneficiary of his downfall, uh, Benny Gantz. You know, Benny Gantz said last year at the Munich Security Council, you know, in no uncertain terms, there is not going to be a Palestinian state. Under his watch, uh, you know, there will be a Palestinian entity, which, you know, I I think there is just not really political forces in Israel in the leadership positions that are willing to go with the political solution, which would be uh, a two-state solution. I know people argue about the binational state, one-state solution, but none of that seems to be on the table. No, you're quite right about that. And I I think... Uh, for an Israeli politician who aspires to be something more than just, you know, left-wing fringe and, and really wants to run the government like Benny Gantz might, uh, the idea of coming out in favor of a Palestinian state is has become as much of a no-no for Israeli politicians who want to, you know, seek power as here in the United States um, taking what can be interpreted by the political opposition as anti-Israeli positions. It, it plays the same sort of role. It's 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 a it's kind of a, you know cancel culture uh, run amok. Uh, and you're quite right that um, that even for somebody like Benny Gantz, whom we look at as you know somewhat more moderate than Netanyahu or or the other elements in the current coalition before they form this little war cabinet. Um, that uh, a Palestinian state is something they just don't want to countenance. Wrapping up here, I wanted to ask you about the U.S. foreign policy establishment, or as the Quincy Institute likes to call it, the blob. Uh, You know, I feel like there's a real problem with what I would say are, you know, these sort of ossified uh, thinking in very outdated modes of, of thought, uh, leaders within the foreign policy establishment. You know, I the example I will use is uh, Ellie Abrams, uh, 10 days before the Hamas attack, was at a congressional committee, and he was advising that the real threat to Israel was Hamas going into the West Bank and trying to gain influence there, and saying that really the, the problem wasn't with Hamas and Gaza, they wouldn't be doing anything anytime soon, or launching an attack from Gaza. He, he was completely wrong on that. And yet, I just heard him on a CFR podcast uh, yesterday. It seems like there are people that have been dealing with Middle East and, and Near East policy that have gotten things wrong a lot, and yet they're still around. There doesn't seem to be any uh, backlash against them. Well, you know, please don't equate uh, Elliot Abrams with you know, a foreign policy establishment. Um, 
Now, Abrams, of course, is a neocon who, uh, and as my friend uh, Stephen Wall at Harvard has written about, is is part of uh, you know the um, the gang that gave us the Iraq War and hasn't paid any kind of penalty in terms of you know losing. He's an ideologue. Yeah, yeah, but. It, I, I would hesitate to get into the concept of a foreign policy establishment. I mean, that includes, you know, people within the bureaucracy who have worked on these issues for many years. And and look look at what we're seeing now with dissent cables and letters being circulated among the permanent uh, bureaucracy that works on these things that are very unhappy about the policies uh, and I think are speaking some truths about what's going on in Gaza. Uh, it doesn't mean that, you know, after Secretary Blinken, you know, reads the cables and says, well, I hear you. Thank you for expressing your views. It's going to have a major impact on the policy. But they're part of the foreign establishment, foreign policy establishment as well. Uh, and I, I, I'm I'm glad to see some of those uh, some of those people speaking out. Yeah, I, I was going to add to that. We just saw um, State Department official Josh Paul resign over yeah. the arms to Israel. Right. So I, that's a good point. And uh, thank you for the pushback on that. Um, I also wanted to ask you here, I think one thing that gets left out of these discussions is the question of whether the U.S.-Israel special relationship not only is harmful to the U.S., but also potentially Israel itself. Uh, sometimes I think you need to tell your allies, uh, hey, you're doing this wrong and things need to change. And sometimes that's what a, an ally does. Uh, would you agree with that sentiment? Oh, I agree. Absolutely. And you recall, I mentioned a while back that, you know, even if one's sole criterion was uh, uh, assuring the security of the Israeli people, and even if somebody frankly didn't give a darn about the Palestinians or how much suffering they were doing, um, it's still a unwise course of action, what Israel is doing right now, uh, because it's just farther down the path of perpetual warfare, always living by the sword, always having the potential for the violent uh, uh, reprisals from people whose uh, self-determination and human rights are being denied. That's not the kind of life I would want to live if I were an Israeli citizen. So I, I think, uh, yes, it, it, it's it's tragic for the Israelis uh, that, that their nation has gone so far down this path uh, where they're going to have to be a, a, a permanent military state, basically, that's never going to see true peace. And even though certain things get walled off and for a time, you know, people, uh, you know, living somewhere in Israel don't have to confront directly, you know, what what's what's going on with this unsettled conflict. Eventually, it's going to affect them. Uh, it already affects them in, in various ways in terms of, you know, people being conscripted into the military and having to do the kind of duty they're doing today. Yes, it's it's tragic for the Israelis uh, as well as for other people in the region. I want to thank you again, uh, Paul R. Pillar, for coming on Parallax Views. Uh, anything you want to say in closing? What what do you hope my listeners uh, got out of this conversation? Well, maybe the point that we just ended on, uh, that regardless of whether you consider yourself most in sympathy with Israelis or most in sympathy with Palestinians, uh, nobody's winning in this. And uh, you, for those who, who really love the state of Israel for many legitimate reasons, um, this has to change. The, the, the course is not helping them any more than it's helping anyone else. Thank you again, Paul R. Pillar. You're welcome. 
Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversations with Paul R. Pillar and Jeffrey Aronson. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, I cannot stress enough that I need your help to continue this show. You are what makes this show possible. So if you can, donate to me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Again, this show is listener-supported, save for one advertiser, the great Mike Swanson of Wall Street Window. Otherwise, it's all up to my listeners to help this project keep moving. So, patreon.com slash parallaxviews patreon.com slash parallax views and with that being said until next time you've been listening to parallax views with parallax views to parallax views with parallax views the way out is not simply to say don't do it just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing this like crazy. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff. It's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.